on maynard.com.au. AU! Hey, let's play a game! Okay. Woo! <laughs> this is a very simple game. All you have to do is try and get the most number of toothpicks in your forehead. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a small room now with a man. When you think about Rat Cat, you think about Caligula, you think of Colette. They're names you hear every day. But you don't hear this guy's name anymore from that time. Also, the Sharp. You hear the sh- all about the oh, sharp. sharp. You hear about the Sharp oh, all the, the time. Sharp. But you never hear about Paul McDermott. Did they ever have a follow-up single, The Sharp, or was it just the one? Train of thought. Oh, wow, you're incredible. Dream what an encyclopedic thought. knowledge you have. Of, and they had the black skivvies. Black skivvies. They're a good-looking band, the Sharp. Now look, and the dugout, the All-Stars, were a good-looking band. Oh, we were a good-looking band, but time has brought us undone, hasn't oh, it? Well, you're not exactly good-looking in a tripod, you know, uh, oh. f- f- Flight of the Concord kind oh. of way. You weren't good-looking like that now. Flight of the Concords are incredible, but they don't have that, that wonky third member that pulls them down. <laughs> if it had just been Tim and I, we would have given the Concords a run for their money. You grew up on the mean streets of Canberra, busking. Well, there are no mean streets in Canberra. Middle-class, well-to-do children. Good uh, backgrounds and good parentage and uh, good schools. But we chose to uh, adopt a persona. Well, it was only me that chose to adopt the evil persona. Um, Basically because the other two were so lovely. I thought we needed some balance. You know, yin and yang sort of moment. Originally when I was in the group, I was the sweet one. I used to do poems about being a dinosaur and things of that nature. Mm. But then both Tim and Richard sort of started copying me, so I had to go somewhere dark they couldn't go. Tim's feminist poetry is uh, well known around the world, but refused to get airtime on the ABC. Once again, another concept... I gave to him. I am a woman trapped in the body of an incredibly good-looking man. You guys lie like all fucking interviews. Every time I had you on the Triple J Breakfast Show, you'd make up a story, and people would get sucked in by this. <laughs> so still the fans love you, yet you provoked them. We do. We delivered, I think, in, in every show that we, we performed at, look, we suddenly delivered the goods. I, I never saw a dud show. I saw about half a dozen shows in Edinburgh or around the place, even saw your last one in Sydney. Of the three guys, I always found you the hardest one to communicate with because you're always drawing, always doing things, always seemed very intellectual. Cause seemed very intellectual. Yeah. Do you hear that? Well, uh, well, the heavy well, stress on the seam. I was an empty vessel doing my... Yeah, 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 yeah. Breakfast show in the morning. Uh, you could say big artists' names that I still don't even know the name mm, of. Prince. Um, yeah, Prince, that <laughs> Kind of thing. <laughs> Where Tim would kind of be polite. Richard was very nice all the time, but you somehow seem to be the one that might drink someone's blood. Well, I've never drunk anyone's blood. Did like uh, a drink. Urine? Uh, we won't go into that, but certainly no one's blood. And also found all the um, trappings of the success. I found them quite burdensome, quite annoying. But I didn't like having to talk about what we did or how we did it. We tried to make the interview process as enjoyable for us as possible and for the mm. interviewer. Um, and when you talk about the liars, that actually came about because of a thing that happened to us in Britain when we were still quite young. We went over to Britain. We'd been together about a year and we'd decided to go to the Edinburgh Festival and we were in Covent Garden. A journalist came up to us from the Sun, I, I believe, and asked us what we thought of the proposed car park that was proposed for Covent Garden. Now, Covent Garden, we said, is a mecca for buskers and we'd travel from Australia to be part of this fraternity that performed on the steps of Covent Garden, a tradition that goes back hundreds of years of people performing, showing their wares and getting money from people as a gift. The people would throw money as a gift for your performance. And so what we thought was an extraordinarily special place for buskers, but not just for buskers, for artists and for artisans and for craftspeople and so on. We said this in, in very erudite language and... 
the next day when we opened the paper, The Sun Up, it said, and I quote, Struth, the idea stinks about as bad as a dingo's breath after a night on the forex, according to the Doug Anthony All-Stars, some Antipodean buskers. Now, the press in that country took enormous liberties with us. Mm. We'd never lied to the press before. But after that, we made it a point that people had to check their facts and if they did check their facts, they would find that everything we told them would be a pack of lies. But no one ever did check their facts. And so when we were, we were doing quite well in England, we did say that Doug Anthony was the Prime Minister of Australia that was assassinated in office on the 11th of November 1975. Anyone that wanted to check their facts that was interviewing us could have gone back and found that to be completely erroneous. Yeah, but this but, was before Google, though. Yeah, particularly the newspaper. They have reference works there somewhere. Well, this was the Times. This was the Times of London that carried underneath the Doug Anthony All-Stars named after the assassinated Prime Minister. And that's where the deceit started happening for us and the toying with the newspaper and journalists in regards to trying to get a better story. How strange was it doing the commentary track to the Das Kapital DVD? Oh, that was all right. It was a bit uh, weird of course seeing the show i don't think we ever saw it when it was on tv we're always working we sort of like we're traveling and touring and so on Mm. so we never got a chance to i never really saw it when it was on tv and of course the uh, artworks of the world scattered around the submarine known as titanic 2 once again we see this uh this duvet cover this dinner cover um I think we could have done a lot more with that cover. I really liked it just because it was so out there. I didn't understand it. I watched it again. Still don't. I just liked the fact that you were doing something like that at that time. It's easy to say, oh, things have changed. We don't have anything wild anymore. But there's plenty of wild things in the media. But what I find is uh, the management's backbone to do something unusual. I mean, you were murdering people uh, on almost primetime TV. Uh, You know, the Pope got shot a couple of times. It was great. Uh, It's one of Richard's favourite episodes. Is that your favourite episode of Das Kapital? I would find it hard to pick a favourite. I mean, that's easy for for people that had very little to do with the shows to probably pick a favourite. But when you're in there, in in actually doing the hard work, it's quite quite difficult to to pick. There are moments in all of them that I think are pretty sensational and and moments that I, I cringe at and shudder at and are horrified by. But at the same time, it was an adventure. For us, I mean, we were just um, doing whatever we wanted to do, basically, with the with the people of Australia's, um, you know, kindness of money. Have you reflected much time about the Doug Anthony's time at all, or you've been too busy working doing other stuff? Well, I've been very fortunate because I've I've managed to work the whole time since the All Stars demise, whereas oh, Tim yeah. and Rich have fallen on hard times quite oh, often. Yeah. <laughs> smell that, folk. That's the smell of success. We're just that. St- Hint of vodka and flavoured lube. Yeah, yeah. And a little bit of musk in there. Yeah, they've had some hard times. So, I mean, I've, I've often had to spend the money that I've made on the projects that I've been successful at and just getting them across the line financially over the course of a year. Uh, it's just a gift, I, I suppose, because of the long association I've had with them. It's just... Uh, they, they just need a little bit, of, bit in the bank occasionally. You have been doing art for a while, but only this year did you do an art show for the first time. Yeah. Well, what's going on there? I stopped showing my work years ago because um, people that like the All-Stars would souvenir on my paintings and they'd steal them from, you know, backstage or mm. if they're left unguarded in stairwells, they went missing. So I had a lot of work that I'd spent a long time doing and um, I just got tired of it being souvenired by people rather than being appreciated by people. And so I decided that I wouldn't show my work anymore. Essentially, I've never stopped making stuff because that's what I do. I'm, I make stuff, um, whether it's with words or whether it's with paint or ideas. I, I like making stuff. Can you switch it off sometimes when you want to? And the fact that you can't do that, is that annoying sometimes? Yes, 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 it's annoying. No, I tried, you know, I've tried various methods of self-medication to, to overcome, <laughs> as many of us do, uh, the, you know, the voices. But... 
there's always something there niggling at me, so... Everyone's got a lot of strong opinions about you. It's just amazing because people go, oh, McDermott, he's the one that... Bought. They go, oh, Paul, I love him. You're not exactly a neutral character, are you? Uh, well, I don't see myself externally that well. I don't go and scrutinise myself that much. Or and and you probably don't like people talking about you that way either, do you? I don't care how people talk about me. No, they can, they can discuss me until the cows come home, but um, I probably won't be part of that conversation. Do you like the way the media's just widened out as far as music goes? You can just have your own little pod with whatever you want and you never have to listen to the radio if you don't really want to? Yeah, yeah I, I love it. I love the fact that, and I, hopefully television will go the same way. At the moment, television just seems to be a monstrosity, a, a great you know, evil le- leviathan of American ads, you yeah. know, cheap, horrible, nasty rubbish, and then the love boat and heart-to-heart on during the day. I mean, what's, what is the point of having a multiplicity of channels and saying it's all free and saying this is free view and everyone can watch it when it's just goddamn ads? It's just wall-to-wall ads. It's just like having a portal to boredom in your lounge room, and now your, your portal to boredom is the size of a, a wall. Television is an ugly world at the moment. It's almost like a lot of people have got to die for TV to get better, as in they've got to get old, move out of the business, because they seem to be reacting to, oh, we aren't making as much money because not as many people are watching, so we'll put more ads on to equal the money. I think everyone's just got to learn to accept less and think to do something different. Well, I mean, exactly like the, the music industry. And now you have this beautiful flowering, this multiplicity of performers that would never have got record deals. I mean, if you look at so, so many of the people coming out of Europe at the moment, there's some, you know, the first aid kit. They're incredible, two beautiful girls doing these extraordinarily rich American-style sort of harmonies and vocals from the, you know, sort of 60s and so on. Television has to find its new crop of young talent in the new media. The people that are producing and making shows in the old way are dinosaurs, and and hopefully we'll go we'll get through this area of the new reality, which is act, actually probably the most distorted television we've ever seen in our lives. So deceptive deceptive on so many levels and yet claiming to be reality and you have a, a, a great swathe of these shows on night and day, the, the cooking shows that we have for half a year and then the fat show that we have for the other half of the year. Oh, and uh, don't forget there used to be the How to Build a Fence renovation show as well thrown in there too. It's mad. I mean all the shows are just, they're all the same now. The formula is so tired and old and we see it replicated uh, in the building of houses, in the making of food, in the losing of weight. It's just... It's just offensive. There's nothing to break up. The only people doing interesting things at the moment uh, are the ABC, I think. Mm. You know, with the Josh, Josh Thomas show, that's adventurous, doing something like that. You know, it's a, that's great. So how did you guys get Das Kapital on the TV back in the day? How many people did you have to go up to and go, oh, we're going to be in a submarine with some works of art and we're going to hit each other a lot? Well, it was a lot different in those days. I mean, you know, you had David Hill and people like that running the ABC who were basically great statesmen for television. They believed in television. They believed in the power of television. And there were people that ran with ideas that they had rather than uh, committees and subcommittees and, and interest parties that would all buy into how it television should be run, the network should be mm. run. Profit wasn't the main concern in those days. We now have the shareholders and they're always demanding greater profits. So you do get a loss of uh, individuality. You get a loss of shows that are eccentric or different. Uh, I find it a lot harder to 
become part of the cut because they're not going to make the immediate profit. That's the bottom line everywhere across the board at the moment. And television is just a money-making machine. It used to be a license to print money. That was the quote that we all grew up with. Television is a license to print money. It's not a license anymore. It's becoming difficult. And so now they're just getting these hideous 24 hours of um, sell-through television. Buy, buy this exerciser, become part of Zumba, lose your tummy fat with Turbo Burster. Back in the day, in the middle of the night... You'd... Back in the day, in the middle of the night! You'd have a crazy old movie on, maybe with a local host, particularly in Adelaide, they yeah. used to do that, and you'd see movies that you'd never ever seen, you haven't seen since, really stupid movies. You'd stay up and say, that movie's stupid, I'm going to keep watching that. Now, they're, to get their money back, they're, they're selling Zumba and stuff Zumba. like that. Yeah, Zumba! Turbo Buster or something, which is like Zumba for white people. Hmm. It's just, it's even duller than Zumba. At least Zumba had that Brazilian flavour to it. It gave it a bit of, a, a bit of exotic romanticism. But Turbo Burster, which is just Zumba, it's just, you know, appealing to housewives who've had a couple of children that may have lost the spark of life getting in their basement and lifting their legs to music. I mean, it's, there's nothing new about this. Why is that on our television? Why? It would be newspaper with mm. nothing of interest in it, just, but just, just ads. ads. Yeah. yeah. The program's just there to keep the ads apart. Mm. That's all that's really going I mean, on. I, look, I've met people at, um, at functions, at various functions, that were the advertising people, basically said to me when we were doing Good News Week, you're only here because of me. And I'd be going, well, who, who are you? And this woman told me she was the woman that placed the ads. The tail is wagging the dog, basically. It's not that way it should work. When we're talking about David Hill and the other great leaders of television, you know, look at Kerry Packer, they were people that had extraordinary ideas and extraordinary visions, but they were their visions. They weren't the visions of 20 other men and women in a room. They weren't the visions that were, you know, split between people. You need leaders. We don't have leaders anymore. We have committees and subcommittees. We have statistics that tell people you should be, you should be looking this direction. Statistics are just numbers, and they can be interpreted like the Bible in any number of different ways. I think we need people of vision again. We don't have people of and, vision. And people that don't mind that they might make a mistake. No, you've got to make mistakes. It's like the, the same thing is happening with the Labor Party and Liberal Party at the moment. We don't have people of vision. We're just in this quagmire of politics at the moment that is so dull and has been dull for like the past, I think, 10 years. You know, we need some, someone again to come and revitalise us, to remind us how great and wonderful politics can be, how extraordinary this country is. Is there a politician that you kind of like? No! There's no one at the moment that's putting their hand up. I think because everyone's dominated by this idea that, that the numbers guide everything in existence. To me, the spirit is the most important aspect. You can vote for Ferguson in the Senate in Victoria, I believe he's running in the oh, next election. He won't be running. 3.7% he got in Kuyong. Oh, can he, he do it again? That's, that's, that what what he said? Well, that's what he said. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Oh, okay. First question comes from a listener, Tim Ferguson, who writes, how come you and Richard were damaged, hurt on the set of Das Kapital during filming, and Ferguson escaped scot-free, injury-free in the entire two seasons, never got hurt. When was I hurt? Uh, Richard said you were hurt. Was I? No, not that I remember. Well, you bloody stapled his head with a staple gun. Oh, it could have been worse, mate. We could have gone with the pneumatic staple gun and blasted it over the black wall. That could have been... That would have been more interesting. At least it would have given us something to talk about now. You know, why did the group fall apart? Well, basically, I killed Richard. (laughs) Yes, I did staple gun his head. It's not one of my more proud moments, but if you had been there, I think you would be more sympathetic to me as the, uh, as the stapler than to him as the staplee. Of course, there's going to be sympathy because he's bleeding, but if you'd seen the way he'd been reacting 
to the fake staple gun. We had to film it three times, which is why I made the mistake with the staple guns. Had we not had to film it three times because of the namby-pamby reaction, you know, there's a consequence. What was the mood on the set? What was the tension in the air when you were filming Das Kapital? During that scene, it was very bright. And we were bright and happy for the first time until... I had the fake staple gun and hit Richard in the head with the fake staple gun and he recoiled in horror like I'd, I'd really stapled him. And that happened two more times before I did really staple him. So you're saying he's only got himself to blame? Yeah, you're a consequence of your actions. So, yeah, I would blame Richard for that entire incident and all the moments he got hurt, I would say that would be his, that would be his fault. How come someone didn't punch you really hard in a live show during the... I know they did in the uh, mining town. That that was a gig that went bad, the mining town. Um, Telfer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No one punched me in Telfer. If they punched me in Telfer, I would have lost my... Those men were like seven and a half foot tall. Because because Richard got hit by a bottle twice in that gig. Oh, rubbish. Rubbish. (laughs) He'd been hit by a bottle twice. He never would have been working again. He would have been out on compo or something. He may have been hit by a bit of toilet paper or, you know, a plastic... Liquid cup. container, a cup or something, a polystyrene. I mean, that would have done enough damage to him. But if he'd been hit by a bottle, we would never hear the end of it. No, he was never hit by a bottle. No, so you're, you're throwing in the sharp relief the last two interviews I've done, and, and now um, it appears that my entire uh, series here is a house of cards. Oh, it doesn't matter. What would you like me to say? Yes, he was hit by a bottle twice, the poor thing. He took it very well. It's incredible someone with incredible weakness about him could take two bottles to the face like that. Well, Richard claims that he has the best memory of all three of you about the Doug Anthony history. Well, that, that may be true. He never did any drugs. Was he just too cheap or no one would share them with him? Oh, no, he always offered to share them with Richard. It was, it was always, you know, would, yeah, please, come and join us on this, uh, this free-for-all, this, this carnival of wonder. But, um, no, he, he refused, which is good. I don't, he, there are certain people should not ever, under any circumstances, have certain types of drugs. Anyone with illusions of grandeur, perhaps. A, a rum toddy was probably the strongest thing he ever had. And it suited him in his cravat and his, his cloth patches on his tweed jacket. And actually, our next question comes from uh, Tim Ferguson, okay. I believe, of Melbourne. Why do you like Tim Ferguson so much? Oh, I loved him. How could you not love Tim? I mean, he, he was just an absolute Adonis when he was a young man. Extraordinarily handsome, debonair, sophisticated, also extraordinarily humble. I mean, had, had such an amazing array of skills, but was never, you know, was never pompous about them and never um, in any way that was uh, other than, you know, self-deprecating. For me, doing the things that I did, I, could, I knew that I could go out on a, on a limb and, uh, and Tim would always be there to, to rescue me if it all went wrong. He's one of those people that I... And I said this a lot about him, and I'll say it to this day, that he's the man that you would do the triple with. You know, the, the, the triple somersault, the Burt Lancaster in The Greatest Show on Earth. In The Greatest Show on Earth, there's, you know, they're trying to do a somersault, and it's the triple. Uh, and to have... You need to have absolute trust in the other person. And some of the things we were doing as the All-Stars in those days in those shows, they were quite adventurous sort of things. They were sort of bizarre and silly and sometimes you'd go into no man's territory. You'd go (laughs) off the page. And that was often the favourite part of the show when you guys would go off a little bit, sometimes scripted, sometimes not, and the audience would go with you but they weren't quite sure where they were. Well, I don't think anyone was sure where they were. We were doing stuff that, you know, we certainly hadn't done before and... um, but, uh, but would want to be an example of one of those pieces that comes to mind? Maybe taking people outside, maybe taking them into the women's toilets, maybe um, getting the whole crowd to scream abuse at a police car in, in Montreal in Canada, maybe getting them in Edinburgh to go down a side alley and sing Christian songs and have the people that were in the uh, apartments around us throw bedpans of waste <laughs> over our audience. Those sort of moments where you, where you live totally in the moment. 
Tim was one of those people that I, I felt absolutely safe doing those things with. Do you think you could do the sort of stuff you're doing then now? Because you've got social media where everybody thinks that they're a critic and they can complain about everything. And you've got people that are more litigious now. Do you think you could go and do these things again? You could, but did you have to suffer the consequences of your actions? In those days, once again, that's a long time ago. I mean, you talk about the 80s and 30 years ago. It was incredible. People didn't have cameras with them the whole time. They certainly didn't have mobile phones. There wasn't the communication that the people have now. And I, I feel incredibly grateful that when we were sticking the cameras we did find down our pants and taking photographs of our genitalia for the benefit of <laughs> some of the, the young fans that came to the show, I'm very grateful that we, didn't, that we don't have the, you know, the worst that could be said about those things is they'd be going around endlessly at some pharmacy in Gippsland. But that's about the audience that you would reach, apart from the one they were intended for. If social media had been around to the day, I'm sure we would have used it in a way that was appropriate. Mm. But what our antics now were, were were done in the same, which are seen on social media, I think they would be, um, I think they would be cause for concern in the wider community, <laughs> especially amongst church groups. We did some pretty naughty and evil things as the all-stars oh, yeah. in, the, in the name of comedy. And another question here. Again, uh, this comes from uh, Ferguson. He's pretty keen on getting... What does the TV show Das Kapital mean? What is it all about? Well, Das Kapital, uh, it must be said, wasn't the, the concept of the TV show wasn't um, something that I was truly a part of. I was sort of busy writing the live shows at the time and we had a few discussions on it. So I thought any vehicle would be okay to get our sort of message across. It didn't matter where it was, what it was. I was more interested in doing a, a small, intimate show about our lives as comedians and singers as performers in London in that in that weird cosmopolitan world uh, and introducing perhaps an array of um, uh, interesting personas through that show. Funnily enough, the, the concept for the Concord show was very similar to that. I can't help thinking that if you guys had gone on and cracked America, you could have been the Concords. I don't know. There's three of us. We'd have to lose one member. I <laughs> well, hesitate to say who it would be. You're constantly threatening that anyway. <laughs> oh, man, should have done it. We never did it. We're just too polite, you know. Well, uh, Where would the Beatles be now if they'd kept Pete best? Well, well, well Richard says well, that you're still in Liverpool. you and Tim are obsessed with money and will probably reform and replace uh, him with a young 20-year-old woman just so you can see her get dressed. Oh, man, uh, yes, we would love to do that. Not a big surprise that we always said that about um, him in the old day. Anyway, if we could find a, a young twenty-year-old woman that could play guitar, we would have we would have given away, you know, a quick flash. And what was the creative process like? I've spoken to Richard and to Tim about you writing the live shows and writing Dash to a certain extent. You all get in the room there. Well, what was the process of just mucking around in rehearsals to get something together like? Oh, like how, how would how would you do it? I'd be really interested to hear how they wrote anything. How, how did they, how did they well, tell you they wrote? Okay, well, What's the writing process for them? Because that, okay, well, that's what I would find fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Tim said that it was all about managing distractions. Richard said that it was uh, fairly chaotic and uh, uh, fairly turbulent, very emotional. That's pretty much all they said. They, uh, they said it was a very strange thing. They also said it would be very strange meeting you again in Melbourne for the show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, surely they yeah. must expect you to be there. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> be there, all right. They didn't have a lot to do with the writing, it must be said. Of course, they'll talk about it as strange and turbulent and not be able to say, well, you put a pen to paper and you write down your thoughts. That's the writing process. You have thoughts, you write them down, and then you take those thoughts to other people and you say, OK, these are the thoughts. Let's work on them from this point. How would you resolve an argument if you would think that something was funny, 
Tim said it wasn't funny and Richard wasn't in the room. How would you actually uh, work out what to do in the show? Well, Tim and I have very similar senses of humour, so that would never happen. And also Tim Tim was very open-minded, like I'm open-minded. We'll go with most ideas. The true compass of whether something was funny or not funny was Richard. We found if Richard laughed at something, it wasn't funny. So keep it out of the show. That's essentially how we operated for the eight years that we were together. It's like if we did something and he didn't understand it, we would go with it. If he laughed at it, it would be out. Even if we, we thought it was the best joke ever, if, uh, if Idler could actually understand it, it'd be like, well, there's no point. But things have changed a lot. I mean, it's television and radio have become far more sort of mercantile in their approach. Is this something you've had to wrestle with working on uh, commercial television? Has it been a bit of a... I've been very lucky with the shows I've done in that they've been sort of popular and they've been well-received, but also there have been things that haven't. I haven't felt like I've been sort of, you know, naked, smeared with shit, licking the boots of some wealthy child of a well-to-do parent. I've been very lucky. I don't feel like I've debased myself on television and I think it is an easy thing to do to start doing um, things that you you don't have faith in or you don't believe in. But I was protected by Ted Robinson and the GNW crew. Ted's a, a great figure because with the Das Kapital he was the guy, Tim basically said that he let you guys do what you want and if you guys were having fun and thought it was good, that was good enough for him. Hmm. I don't think there's that many people in TV generally, even in the ABC, like that as much anymore. There's certainly not as much trust anymore, like trust in the performer. I think it used to be that you would have a performer, the ideas of the performer, the person that had tested and tried themselves on stage and proven themselves and their mettle through a variety of different um, shows. And you would get that person, then you would try and encapsulate that for a televisual, televisual audience. I don't think that happens anymore. It's now you find the person that was skilled at doing certain things on stage and you, you squeeze them and contort them into a box that you've bought from a Dutch company. Now, I don't know what a celebrity is. I don't know if there's a there's a, the term celebrity. It seems such a sort of vacuous, empty title. In the past, uh, celebrity had... There was a skill underpinning the aspect of celebrity. But now there doesn't seem to be a skill underpinning the aspect of celebrity. It's like a term for anyone that can sell... I don't know, New Idea, Woman's Day, by being on the cover. Like, And it seems to be a very broad term that can encapsulate TV personalities, actors, and so on. Anyone that likes basically being in the public eye and selling product. It's like an odious term now. It used to be a term to be quite proud of. And that is what you didn't like about the Doug Anthony All-Stars and to a certain extent some of your other work, the way you get elevated, not because of your work, just because you're doing this thing. Yeah, I think people uh, certainly see you externally in a, in a way that can be, if not damaging to you, then certainly damaging to them. I've never liked that aspect of it. I've never enjoyed that elevation of it. It makes me feel extraordinarily uncomfortable. Tim wants to know, how do you keep your svelte figure? Clearly a jest on the part of Ferguson, seeing I've bloated out completely and now am humongously large around the, around the waist. The girth is something I'm struggling with at the moment. But I have been drinking two bottles of red wine pretty well every night for the last um, two years, which I love. Well, that, Shiraz, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested. The, Just uh, any full-bodied Shiraz. Antioxidants. Oh, I love the antioxidants. The trouble is they, they come with a lot of sugar. Now, is there one moment of the Doug Anthony's live career that, you go back to or you think of from time to time, you go, well, that was gone. Wow, that was strange. That was odd. That was surreal. Most of my memories are pretty... Blurred? Pretty um, blurred, false, deceptive. Implanted? Implanted. I love doing those live shows. I love the mayhem of them and uh, I really enjoyed the God and Satan show, which sadly, you know, we, once we would have captured that on film, but we never really captured that show. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a startlingly good show. I think we had many, many really good shows, but... um. 
that one really had a lot of um, dealt with a lot of issues. I think it had a lot of levels to it. I was very proud of it, but it was more the mayhem that you would encounter at a festival that, that I found thrilling, especially when we'd do shows where we weren't announced or people didn't know us, had no idea of what we were up to or what we were capable of. And to go on those shows with a really volatile audience and win them over in a way that was completely unusual was, for me, quite quite thrilling and still remains, the, I suppose, what the All-Stars were quintessentially, that moment of absolute chaos. How do you think you're going to feel uh, presenting the DVD in Melbourne at the show there? People are obviously going to ask, oh, you guys going to get back to your gig again. Oh, you're going to do a tour. Are you going to do a book? Are you going to do a Hallmark movie, which I would really love? Oh, look, I've been, I've been pushing for some sort of film, an adaptation on the life of the All-Stars for a while. Probably one of the few things I was able to contribute to the All-Stars, the only my field of expertise, at the end of the Edinburgh years where you're wandering through the field right. b- before you shoot yourself, yeah. where you're doing a stream of conscious rant, you checked with me before that for the release date of Dancing Queen, I believe, so <laughs> that you, you you didn't, even though it was a stream of consciousness rant that didn't mean anything, you wanted to be sure that you had the release date of Dancing Queen correct in the middle of your rant. Yeah, in the middle of rant. Wouldn't yeah. want to get that wrong. That's all I contributed to All-Stars. That's all. Yeah. The idea of a, a Hallmark telly movie. For me, the interesting time was the time before anyone knew us in Canberra, like before the suits, before took off. That was interesting. When you were cutting your teeth, seeing what did and didn't work, dying in the street one day, winning him over the next. We, we never really died in the street. We were lucky. It just sort of, it clicked. You know, it was just three people that just clicked. And you could feel it. You could feel the, the rush of it. And for me, I have always been, prior to that, a very um, very insular, sort of introverted sort of person, and certainly at art school. Some, sometimes that introversion comes across, people think, oh, he's just up himself because he's not talking or something, because I've heard people say that about you. It's not. you just got your own thing going on, and you're not being rude to anybody. You're just doing your thing. I, I don't know. Do they expect everyone to be Mr Show Business? I don't know. Why are people quick to condemn? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm very rarely in the same room, if that makes sense. I'm in my head. I'm talking to you, we're going around, all different things. I can see things going on in your head. It's like, yeah, right, you're that one. There's, he's that one, he's the other one. You were a very unique trio. Quite uh, lucky in that regard. I, mean, I can be in a room full of people, but I'll be thinking about a drawing or painting or you know, words in my head. I, I feel very disconnected most of the time from reality as, as we understand it. Would, um, would you want to take a pill to fix that if they could? No, God, no. I mean, I love the, I love the chaos in my head. I really, I, re- I love it. It's where I live most of the time, so it's something I've lived with, you know, for all my life. So, and I love it. I love the things that I make and produce. I mean, I love the All Stars. That was an extraordinary time, and and things since then. You know, if, even if you're just looking at the public persona in regards to to Good News Week or the dance show or um, any of the other numerous things I've done, God, or or the, recently the paintings. I, I love the things I make. Otherwise, why? What's the point? Your jeans are too tight. Your jeans are too tight. I'm seeing the moon. I early on rejected the idea of, um, of, of the normal life that is proffered to people at school. I went and did a few months in the bank and I realised that... <laughs> Sorry, um, you were a teller? I was a teller, I was a bank teller, yeah, when I first left school. I'd like to make a deposit. Yes, well, hand over your passbook. 
I've just left it in the car. Can I go out and get it? Well, you have to go out and get it because we have um, we've just got Olivetti machines at the moment, so I can put your passport through the Olivetti machine. But I cannot take money or give you money if you don't have your passport. I will have to sign your passport. So, but why is this Australian bank buying Italian machines? Surely there must be uh, Australian machines. The Olivetti was one of the first ever, um, you know, competent machines for. Um, uh, computing in regards to the, uh, you know, taking the passbook, your passbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't have them anymore, but they were great little things. You used to have to put all the entries in by hand, and then the Olivetti came along, and you could, uh, yes. you, could you could slide the passbook into the Olivetti, and See? bang. So you were there at a crucial time in banking history, and now you are here at a crucial time in entertainment history. Exactly. Well, the, the Olivetti was quite funny because on public service paydays in Canberra, where I, I, I was at the Commonwealth Bank in Canberra, Thursday in Canberra, public service payday, and the Olivetti machines would overheat and they would all break down. Probably making a sort of a funny Gestetner-type smell, that yeah, well, a bit of electrical burning going on, and you'd have to go back to the biro and uh, make all the entries in biro, and, of course, the lines would be extraordinarily long. I've had a look at your, your blog where you show a few of the artworks you've been working on, and, and two things come to mind. Look, always, always seem to have a bit of a dark Lewis Carroll thing going on. Mm, I love that um, innocence flawed. That's where everything comes from for me. It's that broken child idea. And so, have you lost your studio? You said that the yuppies upstairs were renovating and you were kicked out. No, I'm the yuppie upstairs. Oh, you're the yuppie. I'm the, I'm the yuppie upstairs with my family. And the studio is the is the quagmire under my house that I haven't renovated. Oh. And at the expense to my wife and child, I have, uh, you know, I have a yard that is filled with asthma grass and I have walls that are covered in mould because I'm not really a practical human being in any regard, shape. Well, you're obviously not watching those renovation shows, are you, really? You, oh, you, man. Sure, you bag them, but you watch them and you might learn something, Paul. I want one of those shows to just come and take my keys and this is a plea because if you'd seen my house it really is i'm like a monkey living in a in a human house i'm i'm a, i'm this i'm a caveman i'm not a socially functioning being i've got this image of uh, paul mcdermott sitting in a wreck of a room for an hour or two on end before doing something sometimes you sometimes sit and it's all going on widescreen in your head before you actually put anything to anything oh, yeah, that's the best that's the thing you've got to give things time you know so yeah you sit there and you think especially if you're halfway through something too if you if you if, if i'm doing a painting a large painting part of the most important process probably is just looking at it just looking at it thinking trying to play a bit of guitar thinking looking at it thinking you know. ever thought of doing a time-lapse camera of, of, of a day of that and just and then looking at it later to see what you get up to there It'd be very interesting a time time and motion study of an artist no no i have i've, I've wanted to put um gopros in every corner of the, but i have no locks on my house so uh, but i've wanted to put gopros in every corner and and just film the process because it is quite a bizarre process there's moments of extraordinarily activity that seem very brief and then long long periods of just sitting admiring Hating. Which is also what touring is like for a comedy act. Lots of airports, lots of sitting around, lots of each other's company, a bit like Dust Capital, Titanic itself, yeah. yeah, pressure cooker. And then explosives night on stage, then like a sandwich back in the hotel afterwards and it's all over and the crowd's gone. Did that ever become easy or was that just always strange? I found it always strange. It's a strange thing. I mean, we were very lucky because there were three of us. And whether we're having, you know, internal tensions or whatever, it didn't really matter because at least there were three of us. You'd see some of the stand-ups who travel the country by themselves and essentially at the end of a night, whether it's good or bad, have to go back and sit with themselves 
totally alone. I mean, at least with Richard. Quietly reviewing the gig if there was any problems with it. Yeah, and at least with Richard and myself, there were three of us. We'd be able to talk about the gig. If the gig was a failure, there was always two other people to blame. You know, that was always pleasant. You never have to take upon yourself, totally. There were two other people that were responsible for it. Even though, you know, it was very hard to see their faces occasionally in the morning, you want to pound them into the pavement, you still had two other people there. There was still a family and a fraternity and um, a kindredship. And like any family, occasionally you just can't stand being around your your brothers or sisters, you know. Your, your, you Will know. it be odd being on stage with them in Melbourne again? I don't think so. I mean, the times... I've been on stage a couple of times with Timmy since the, since the break-up of the group. We have something uh, approaching a blood relationship, not... Uh, in the blood well, well, sense. There'd but be nothing left to talk about, really, would there? Eight, eight years of touring, sitting around, you've talked about everything you're possibly ever going to talk about, really. You probably know each other more than anyone else on the planet. Well, we know each other pretty intimately, yeah. That's both a gift and a curse. It's hard to know so much about someone, and, and yet it's an honour to know so much about someone. In regards to discomfort on stage, I don't think I'll be experiencing any discomfort. I might make other people feel <laughs> uncomfortable. That's only part of the play, you know. You're doing sex with dogs on the ABC at 9 o'clock at night. I fuck dogs. In the park. After dark. When the moon is up high in the sky. The great day. Too tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I, I love the, the stuff that we were doing. It was ex- big gig back then. Q&A now. Really? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> uh, it was thrilling. I mean, it really was thrilling. I mean, we were so caught up in it at the time. I th- oh, by the way, Sideshow. I really liked your work on oh. Sideshow too, Paul. I really did enjoy that, and I was hoping it would have gone a bit longer, but it was good it was there, and it showcased some things that couldn't be showcased anywhere else. Welcome to the Sideshow. We're having a soft white big top and a ring full of sawdust. is actually a good thing. <laughs> well, we can talk about Sideshow for a second. As a, de- a deviation from our main plan. The sideshow was incredible, and I'd come up with the concept, which is essentially a big gig, but with circus sort of yeah. performers and doing it like a three-ring circus, and I'd taken it to the ABC, and they, they seemed interested, but then they never got back to me, and then suddenly Ted's ringing me one day <laughs> saying, would I like to host this show? And it's like, what's the show? And it's my show that I've taken to the ABC as a concept, right? <laughs> so, so someone found the folder in an office someone, somewhere. Well, someone, I don't know who it was, <laughs> someone from middle management went and said, oh, let's do this show, but I think they were going to cut me out of it, and then they went Ted and Ted, of course, would be great at doing this sort of show because it funnels into his whole multi-camera sort of knowledge and so on, his whole experience of doing it. In fact, when I when I put the show together, I was thinking Ted should be the man to do it. And then, so by this uh, circuitous route, it comes back to me to be the host. So it's like <laughs> bafflement, right? And I was lucky because I got to uh, co-design a lot of that show and did oh, my backdrops oh, for the oh, my paintings were the things that. With a set, basically. So all those giant devils and demons and great oh, sort of circus sideshow. I, I could see that in the design. I, I figured you would have had something to do with it. Do, yeah. you, do you actually sell your artwork much or you no, don't do no, that? I don't, don't sell it. And certainly those were my influences when I was a kid, like the, the things that I loved watching would be Abbott and Costello and, um, and, and things of that nature, you know, um, and, and Dean Martin. And As a kid, did you want to live in the apartment that Dean Martin had with the pole? And the oh, piano. How could you? How could yeah. you not? Anything with exposed, uh, you know, stone uh, in a fireplace would be great. And, and a having, pole. And a pole and having babes walking around scantily clad constantly was a bit of a dream, and it has happened on occasion. Can I ask you what your next project is and what you want to do, or are you, you going to have a little break and sit and not paint and then paint 
and then paint and not paint yeah, by the guitar. Paint, paint. Well, I want to make a couple of short films, I think. I want to start making short films again. I made two, and they're sort of pixelated animations with live actors and great narration from Ruth Cracknell, and um, I would like to get back into that. Hugo Weaving did a brilliant um, read, a Pia Miranda on my... Uh, the girl swallowed bees. It was just beautiful. There was a girl in constant pain whose stomach churned and churned, for in her life she never found the peace for which she yearned. So she made a pact to end it all, to commit a fatal act from which there was no way out and never no turning back. And I really enjoyed that process of creation with those films. So I'd like to do a couple more uh, short films. I have two that I'm interested in at the moment. Paul, you're someone who has a a very strong creative dream and an idea. Do you collaborate well? You certainly collaborated well with uh, Richard and and Tim. Do you generally collaborate well with people or or do you not like bartering your ideas away sometimes? Well, you could see it as a collaboration with Tim and Richard, but really it was, I I suspect, part of the animosity, especially on the part of uh, Richard, uh, would be it was dictatorial. How would you run the bloody show live? The songs had had through lines to them. If you if you you know could pick them up, sometimes they were they were disparate, but um, there were certainly certainly ideas there that were connective. Sometimes the sketches between the the pieces would be connective as well. But we also had that idea that you could shift things around like blocks and have blocks of pieces that could click together. And then there was the organic aspect of the show, which was the thing that was the most... Change from show to show. They were very well-constructed pieces. And you had those songs as anchors, so that if something went a bit weird, there's the song. Bang. And that was the great thing about Bob Down as well, because he'd be going, yeah, and, and then if a gag didn't work, into a song, everything forgiven. Yeah, everything forgiven. And also, it gave you great opportunity to play to create something out of nothing and uh, the best moments for me were when that happened we had a joke once we had a joke I had a joke once let's be honest about it now why why sugarcoat it after all these years and keep up the pretense I had this joke uh, I took to the boys and said uh, here's the joke Joseph and Mary working around the house one day and they're trying to come up with a name uh, for the baby that's about to be born and the last thing that uh, Joseph says is Jesus what are we going to call him Boom, boom, right? I said, all we need to, all you've got to do is delay me getting to that joke. Okay? So I'm going to be working on a lathe. So I do the movement like this on the lathe. And you've got to, you've got to stop me getting to that joke. And that was great. That's all the instruction that Tim needed. He, he then was, here's Mary ringing the doorbell. There were doorbells weren't invented, you idiot. You know, how could you have a doorbell in, in that time? 1 BC or whatever, or, or pre. So I'm doing the lathe, Tim's throwing in things, Richard threw things in occasionally. That joke became like a 10-minute piece, like of of really outstanding comedy that I I can't even describe to you now, but all the intricacies of it. I love the French, the up and the down. It's Oh, it's coming back. It was almost like the rule of three was turned into a rule of five, into a rule of seven. <laughs> and Nothing like repetition. I mean, repetition's great. And also those songs like the French and so on, they had break moments in them that you would have the, you'd have the you know, a minute and a half of tight derogatory quasi-French words uh, <laughs> deriding the French. And then you would have a breakdown moment where you would free associate or do something weird. Sorry, I thought I was at a Christian revival meeting there for a while. So the lovely constructions that were happening allowed allowed for moments of 
excess and stupidity and abstract thought, and then you would click back into a moment where you would have the, the song again. If the Doug Anthony All-Stars hadn't happened, what could happen to you? I probably would have been successful. And we've got to come back to some music. We've got to play some music. I'm not, I'm not going to get out of this interview without you picking some music for some reason, no matter how spurious. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. There's so many things that I like, I suppose. Um... Well, I played Ratcat during Tim's interview. <laughs> so, look, look, hang on. Here's a bit of the shark. Yeah, we're back. A bit of the sharp there. Pretty yeah. good, to just to remind people of their greatness. Uh, motorcycle St. Sebastian. That's very you. I, I was almost thinking Skinhead Skippy for a moment. Who's that walking on air? Bouncing down the street without a care. Skinhead Skippy, the killer kangaroo. With blood soaked for the boot. Racist attitude. Why that one? It's a song that most people probably have forgotten about. I thought it was a pretty good song at the time. Was, was, was it a really early one for you? Was that a busking one? No, no, that was only written for the record when we did the Icon record. It just sort of came out of a, a day of um, of being silly and a song that I had tucked away. The concept I really liked, I liked the idea of this, um, like a motorcyclist that was pinned to a pillar with arrows littering his body. I suppose it was a bit homoerotic uh, in the style of... Um, What's his name? Mishima. You know what was funny about that, though? Uh, Molly Meldrum came out and uh, gave a review of the record, which was quite sort of glowing of the, the first uh, Icon record. Was that on Countdown Revolution? In the press, oh, in the wild. print. Okay. In print press, yeah, in print press. You kids wouldn't remember. That was like print press. In a broadsheet, I think The Age. Had a line in it. He's a motorcycle St. Sebastian. He's a, he's a rapscallion. Molly thought we were making up the word rapscallion. That it had not existed prior to us, that, you know... A genre of music, rap, scallion. Yeah, rap, scallion, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that, I thought it was very funny. But here's this uh, sort of slightly archaic word, but still I thought one, certainly in my in regular usage by me, to think that someone actually thought it was a reference to, you know, a new, a new word that we invented in Shakespearean way that we just lobbed new words into it. Well, let's have a listen to that. Hey, It's not the sort of word you could imagine Molly using, really, could you? Well, I don't know. I think he could have um, used it to great advantage over many years if he'd uh, used <laughs> oh, it appropriately. Oh, 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 Mr Iggy Pop, stop being such a rapscallion rap on the set. Exactly. Mm. Naughty little rapscallion, that sort of thing. Have you got a message for um, the fans out there that are going to finally see this on DVD quality, Das Capital, and going to get together, have their Das Capital party, drug-crazed parties, I imagine? It, it's really going to bring the country back to where it should be and give us all the hope that we thought had gone. Yes, d- definitely. I mean, it's, it, it always did fuse families together, I think. I mean, whether it was the big gig or Das Capital, there was so much love out there for us. And and still something to this day that that mothers and and daughters or fathers and sons will come along to. Yes, it's a real dichotomy with the Dark Anthony because you had that violent edge thing going on, but you had the sweet harmonies that would win them over and you were lovely, good-looking guys. You had the evil. It was all dwelling in the same place. Well, two of us were lovely, good-looking guys and two of us had sweet voices and great harmonies and two of us were, were wonderful comedians. I won't say who... And it was one of those things where families were very, um, I think, enamoured to us. And it's great to still see people coming that say their mother got me on, you know, my mother got me onto this, or my dad was so keen on you guys and, you know, playing me stuff when, when I was four or five. It's sort of sweet. 
I'm not talking to Richard Wilkins. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, yeah, okay. I think that's a compliment. Oh, is it? That, that's where you say, thank you, Maynard. Oh, oh thank you very much, Maynard. I, I quite like Richard Wilkins. Mm. He, he fills a certain void in, in our, the fabric of our society. So let's see now. So Ferguson does big stick. Fidler stays on the ABC lunchtimes. You're going down into your shed to maybe do a bit of short movie work, maybe paint, maybe not, play the guitar, maybe see if stole a GoPro camera, stuff like that. And that's all we can really say is happening with you guys? Is there nothing? I mean, there was rumours of Tim writing a book. Oh, Tim. Tim's always writing. I mean, he's a great writer. Actually, have you got books of ideas somewhere that you never used because like, you used to carry the A4 folder around with you. You're always writing things down. Do you keep that stuff? Do you ever revisit it? Or is there stuff from five years ago you go, hey, there's another show? Oh, look, I, I have miles and miles of useless things. I mean, I, I the exhibition I had in Adelaide had three main rooms in it. One was called The Dark Garden, one was Ghost Bear, and one was Emil Cursed. And they're all story ideas that are quite Massive in their own regard, and they're only one fragment of an incredible litany of ridiculous sort of. And you must like concept. being able to put the art up there, and then you get out of the way. Oh, I, I love not being there to have to support it. I like it standing by itself, and that's the beautiful thing about the short films too, because whether they've won major awards across the world, but no one knows me, you know, really outside of Australia. So it's that was really quite exciting to be able to go to to the Berlinale with um, with both films and be in competition in, in Berlin. And there are a lot of wankers in that world. I would like to be one. I was just about to say, how do you avoid that? But obviously that's not what you want to do. Oh, no, God, no. No, I'd like to be a wanker <laughs> in that world. I mean, all those worlds, whether it's music or whether it's film or whether it's uh, stage and so on, they're all just little microcosms and you see the same people over and over again with different faces on, with the same sort of ambitions or the same ideas of greed or what's good or what's bad, and the same pomposity and the same sort of uh, small-mindedness and the same sort of restrictions and parameters and so on. It's, it's, it's funny, you know, every time you, I go into a different area... It doesn't matter what it is. I just see the same sad formulas all the time. Is it for lack of imagination or is it laziness? It's both. It's lack of imagination and laziness. I think we are saddled in contemporary society with a, with a bloated middle management that want to believe that they're creatives, but they're, they're nothing at all like creatives. So what's the answer? Different middle management? Get rid of middle management? A different art form altogether? I'd like to say I was a male in this regard and could provide you with an answer, but I don't know what it is. I really I don't know. It's just what we, we, what we seem to have delivered to ourselves in this, in this society anyway, this, this idea that everyone, everyone's idea is valid, which it just isn't. I mean, it just is not. It just isn't. At the end of the day, it's just, there's a lot of idiots out there. So is that your pet hate, someone on Twitter or something like that going and causing a stir about something that they don't know anything about and they've gone off half-cocked? Is that one of your pet hates? Oh, no, I don't know. I mean, not more than any other pet hate. There'd be too many of them. I've got litter after litter of pet hate. Twitter's a fine example. I mean, it, it's a great vehicle, but if you looked at everything was written on Twitter, how much would actually be valid. And how, how much, much of it's read? I mean, everyone tweets, not many people read. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant in some regards and it's completely flawed in others. Part of that is great, but it does mean that we have to now deal with this uh, great burgeoning leviathan of, of waste, of words that uh, people have put out there, of cries for help that no one's going to read. I reckon you should do a philosophical one-hour radio show a week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. People don't tell you what's on the show until it's on opening theme and you get handed a bit of paper and then you're off. I reckon that would be the way to run you for an hour show in the radio. Well, I'd love that, but I find radio dead medium. In my mind, I'm not a radio listener anyway. I'm a a very visual person, I think. I like seeing stuff. I don't have a radio in the house and I don't have a way of um, 
tuning into radio. Was there a ceremony of the throwing out of the radios at any stage? Did one go into the trash? I've never really listened to radio. I, I did used to listen to Triple J when I was in a bedsit in Canberra because someone had left a radio, like a That's receiver. That's a perfect environment at that time for listening it to was. the bedsit, the Morrissey years. Yeah, Morrissey I first came across because Ben Taylor, who was one of our teachers, had been sent this um, this cassette and it was the very first Smith's release. So we had it in the art school because uh, Nigel used to run a record store. And I remember taking it, saying to Richard, you've got to hear this, it's brilliant. And I sat there with Richard and played it to him and he did not understand it at all. He was going, the guy just, he's just whinging, this guy. No, no, listen to it, listen to it. This is the most profound statement that an artist has made for, like, since Keats. Come on. Which brings us back to our final point. If Richard doesn't like something... It's probably good. Richard says uh, that you're in love with him and, uh, and Tim, I think, thinks that uh, you've been riding on his coattails. <laughs> Very true. Both, both are correct in their assumptions about me. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Riding on, uh, riding on Tim's coattails, desperate to get the, to the wonderful, rich, fecund wonder of uh, Richard Fighter's love. Always been uh, denied it. <laughs> We were just about to walk out. We, we, we had the vodka shots lined up in the hookers. And then, but wait, I've actually accomplished something recently. What have you done? You're playing with your phone there. We did a song as part of the Paul Sings show with the, with the new little band I have. And I suppose when you're asking about what am I up to at the moment, this is like a new song that we've just, we've just put out. It's just such a pretty song. That's all. Beautiful, rich harmonies. And I'm doing songs that aren't um, comedy songs. These are just old songs from the sideshow. And... Oh. I think people sometimes are listening to you waiting for the joke and, and they get very confused. Uh, sorry, I'm singing now, I can't. Mm-hmm. This, how beautiful is this? Oh. Did you compose that when you were supposed to be painting? Yeah, yeah. I, I never... Um, I mean, when I'm painting, I think, oh, man, I should be writing. And when I'm writing, I think I should be singing. And when I'm singing, I should be painting. So I'm easily distracted. I've, I'm doing one thing, but my brain's percolating about something else. I think that's why I enjoy the, the creative process so much. It's just I have a, I've been gifted with another number of outlets to be able to express things. So I don't just express in writing. I can express with paint or, or drawing or making short films or singing or songs. So, yeah, I just feel extraordinarily lucky. You are a very talented guy. You have also been so lucky to be able to do what you love for so long. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I realise that as I get older. That To be able to do what you love for so long through life, that way you're not really working. Oh, no, I haven't worked at all. I feel, you know, look at the hands. Look at the soft, beautiful hands. I had that stint in the bank where I was a bank teller and I realised at that point that I wasn't 
meant for that sort of society. Mm. Was that, that McDermott, the Olivetti years? Was yeah, it? the Olivetti, well, a few months, yeah. Long enough to realise this sort of sad duplicity of a bank, its hypocrisy and um, bizarre way it, it treated people, like the idea of the corporation is something that I've really railed against in my entire existence, I suspect. Well, yeah. The Gulf of Mexico and the oil spill with BP and so on, it's still extraordinarily criminal behaviour. Now, do politics, have they moved anywhere near the centre as you've got older? A lot of people slowly move to the right as they get older they get scared of the young people doing stuff I think Tim certainly has moved uh, to the to the right occasion I'm not quite sure it's a parody it's not, not a surprise really is it he, he was always pretty centralist in his, in his policies even though he presented Although as a totally insane man there he was on uh, Q&A advocating completely free public transport Oh, I, I think he's probably right with public transport. I mean, if they could get it right in any way, shape or form, it would probably benefit people. The car situation is appalling. Across the globe, it's, it's ridiculous that we have these massive vehicles that we sit one person in and we've got to then take up land to make uh, parking spaces. Now, does McDermott drive? No. no you, what, you haven't got a licence? I haven't got a licence, I don't drive. Never wanted one? Um, well, I, I have wanted one, especially when I've been caught in a car without a licence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was lucky. I think if I'd driven when I was younger, I probably would have been some sort of terrible smash. And, and not just for my own sake, but for the sake of others on the road. Yeah, because I'm thinking, what kind of personality of a car would... Um, I'm thinking uh, the Mrs Smith car where the door comes on the front and it's got the three <laughs> wheels. Something <laughs> wacky like that. Wacky. Or, or something just bog standard like an old Valiant that's just never been cleaned and it's got wrappers in it up to the door. Yeah, I don't mind a flatbed. I like, a, I like a bit of a flatbed. Something useful. Something useful, yeah, practical. Our time is up here. There's probably someone who's got to come in and talk about religion or something like the, that in this room. And, something and, about lived, yeah. Now, that track you played, where can we find that? Oh, where can uh, we find that online? Now, where, where can we find you online? In fact, you go to your website with your artwork mm. and you're keeping it a bit quiet. It's like, <laughs> is this McDermott? There's no photo of him. There's not even a printed name there. And he's talking about renovations in, in the way that indicates that maybe he's going to stop painting because the house is falling down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm, I'm a bit backward in coming forward. I always have been. I think it's about time. I had the exhibition in Adelaide and... Um, yeah, but how about one in Sydney, one in Melbourne? I've got to find a spot, if anyone's got a spot for me. You're looking for a nice renovated public toilet. I mean, what's, what's a the renovated area? public toilet sounds good. Um, I mean, I don't really mind. I, I just don't know until I, I see the place, I suspect. I'm not really that interested in the whole gallery idea. Because I, I want to show my work and I want to really sell it. Mm. But at a gallery, I'd probably be yeah, um, and, obligated to sell. And galleries are usually there for that reason. They exist to sell. What about a public one? Uh, there must be plenty of public ones, but I guess you can't just go in and go, hello, can I put my stuff up? Maybe I've got to find somewhere like that that's interested in hosting a, a, a show by me somewhere that's unusual. I mean, I quite like the idea of doing things that aren't normal. Does the family occasionally uh, ask Dad to be normal or are they given up on that a long time ago? We are normal in our own way. It's only when you look at yourself in regards to how other people exist within society that you think you maybe you're not you're not functioning in the same regard, you know, in the same way. You don't have the same ideals and same belief systems. So, but I suspect everyone's like that to some degree. I just mean in regards to pursuing that idea of art as a saleable commodity and and selling it to people. It's not something that, that thrills me. I don't like the idea of someone having one of my works on the wall just because they have oodles of useless cash that they've got lying around that they could invest, um, you know, $20,000 in a painting. It doesn't sort of appeal to me that that becomes my market, if you know what I mean. But you just become part of that um, marketplace. And if your work sells, it's because these people that have money are interested in buying your work. And it also draws into the question to me as well, how do, the, how do people come by these, you know, enormous amounts of wealth? Is it through nefarious activities and then... If, if they are, are liking your work that you've put on walls, are they in somehow 
You're mm. suddenly in league with devilish aspects of our community. I do like the idea of doing, you know, uh, prints and limited runs and stuff, but I, I sort of want to keep the original stuff for myself. What is the Doug Anthony All-Stars legacy? Das Capital's legacy. Is there a legacy? Is there, some, is there a warning to history? Look, I think the All-Stars have been incredibly influential on a great number of people over the years, and certainly a lot of people that are now names in Australian comedy, um, certainly sort of British comedy as well, have, have stated to me sort of quietly that the first show that set them on the path that they chose was Das Capital or The Big Gig and in England uh, the Viva Cabaret shows or seeing our live performances. And uh, it's amazing how many people I now know that snuck in you know, underage to see an all-stars performance in Glasgow or in Scotland. Whole seas of 15-year-old girls at, at, some, <laughs> at some of your shows. There was that fandom intensity, but there was something more going on there. It's like you had gone straight into that poetry book that they normally put under the bed and write. You guys were in somehow in that same world. Yeah, it was, a, it was an intense period. And I don't think we realised at the time how intense it was, but it certainly, we tapped into something, a, bit, a discontent, certainly in... Um, in teenagers, once the big gig happened, it lowered the age of our audience dramatically. We were used to doing festivals at that point. We'd done the, a couple of the Adelaide, you know, the Fringes and so on, the Cabaret Festival, I think, in the old days. And maybe Edinburgh. Yeah, we'd done our first Edinburgh because that's where Ted had seen us. So we'd done, we'd done a number of festivals and the, and the age of our audience was much older. But when we did television, the big gig, it lowered our audience tremendously. So we came, when we came back to Australia... Now, were you tempted to change what you're doing because of that or not? Oh, we became more rabid, I think, more rejecting of our audience. Yeah, or I, I did anyway, and the, the other boys followed suit. Just because we were suddenly playing to people that weren't discerning in regards to what we were doing. And it, that was difficult because a lot of what we did was based on how the audience reacted to something, and so we would... And if, we they, would if they loved everything, you had no idea if they, what was good or bad. If they love everything, then you've got no way of... Yeah, you've got no reference point. You've suddenly become mapless. And it's hard, especially in a communicative idea like comedy, and the comedy we were doing, to suddenly find yourself lost, which, which I think we did for a little while, which was why we went to Britain so often in those years, for at least six months to eight months every year, because here was an audience that hadn't yet gravitated to us on a, in a, on a television and our audience age group hadn't lowered. So we were doing songs from that period that, were, that became sort of, I think, more challenging to the younger people. I did get that from you guys at the time that you wished you were being held to task more by your audience in Australia. I, I did get that feeling from you a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, it became very difficult for us. We were pushing the boat out pretty far from the shore in regards to the sort of work we were doing on the stage in that regard. It um, was something we carried into Eng uh, to to Canada, I think when we were working there, we 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 did very obtuse shows when we were in America. Things that they, you know, in, the, in North America, things that they didn't really comprehend, understand, or didn't have the reference points to. Do you think that could have held back a potential TV producer in the audience going, "Ah, oh, I could put these guys on Comedy Central," and you'd be doing the obtuse show and you'd go, "Well, I don't know what." Oh no, definitely. I mean, we should have started again when we didn't have much guidance in those days, and so we were doing just what we did, and we were happy with our show. I mean, it was it was certainly very successful in Britain, um, in Scotland when we were performing there, but when we came over to do Montreal. We were skating on pretty thin ice in regards to how people perceived us and I remember a guy stopping us in the elevator and screaming abuse at us because of the Dead Elvis song. Another person, uh, someone who, an agent from one of the reputable agencies uh, in LA. A, a casting uh, agent? Casting agent, saying, um, and, and a uh, producer and promoter, stopping us and once again screaming at us in no uncertain terms that we would never, ever work in America. No, he would make sure that we never got 
entry into the country because he was offended by what we did. Anything in particular? Was it a, a Christian thing? Was it? Uh, was there something you were tearing down that he held value the, to? The Dead Elvis song was something that, that, that I mean, as, as mocking as that is and as silly as that is, that was, um, that was something that got really incited people in crazy ways in Montreal. And also because they didn't understand the sort of the audience play that we'd gotten quite used to in Australia and, and Britain. I remember insulting one fella's shirt one night just as a joke, just because there was a dead moment. It was like, oh, you know, the striped shirt. You're wearing the striped shirt as the guy next to you and you talk to each other before you came out to make sure you had the same striped shirt and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just fairly simple stuff, nothing too uh, dramatic or dire about it. But afterwards, the guy came up to us and it looked like he'd been dabbing tears away from his eyes and said, what's wrong with my shirt? And I said, well, well nothing. Nothing is wrong with your shirt. And he went, why did you have a go at it? I said, well, just because it, it was there. It was like a red rag to a ball. He said, well, my wife bought me this shirt. And I said, oh, I'm sure it's a, you know, it's a lovely shirt. But we went into a, quite a long discussion about the shirt and um, you know, the good, bad aspects about the shirt, which is so stupid. It wasn't could, about could, the shirt. Could you imagine that today? It'd be, oh, th- these people insulted and made my daughter cry at a concert. It would be up and then uh, the, the, the press would get hold of it and then you'd be demonised for doing comedy. Well, we were demonised anyway. I mean, back in the old day, but not in the in the, in the the realm of social media where everyone has a voice. And, and certainly there are people who didn't enjoy our shows. Well, if you don't enjoy them... You well, don't, don't come again. Don't, don't come to them. You know? I mean, how many times have you been to any artistic endeavour of any kind... And it's been not what you thought it would be. It, it hasn't necessarily been bad. It's just not what you thought it would be. So you go, oh, well, and you go home. People love complaining. It's like your, your art didn't speak to my soul. Sorry. Well, luckily, my art does speak to most people's souls, so I don't have that, uh, that problem. But in regards to the... <laughs> the universal voice yeah, the universal of McDermott. Voice. Oh, here we go. A lot of people do complain about a numerous idea. I think it's a great thing. It's what we have, you know. It's our voice to complain and, and, and once again, espouse our ideas voice them on others and so on. The the real tragedy is when people just don't understand. I don't mind people complaining if they've got a valid reason to complain, but it's when you've missed the entire... Mm. You've missed the whole idea of what's going on here. If you don't get it, you don't get it. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. One of the great things was was getting talked to by... Bert Newton, the great man. That's right. You know, because... He uh, he set you straight. Well, he he was great because he, he just said, you know, do whatever you want to do. He was one of those people, that, you know, like Ernie Sigley as well. The, all the old school um, vaudevillians and all the old school comedians really understood us. Well, group who've changed the face of television somewhat too. Richard Fidler, Tim Ferguson and Paul McDermott, put them all together and they're the Doug Anthony All-Stars. We only really had trouble when we, uh, we, we encountered new journalists who didn't have the range of skills of stage and screen that, that everyone knows that you're a performer. You're a performer. You know, you don't embody um, chaos. You don't really have... You're a performer. You're putting on a show. Whereas people like Bert Newton knew that instantly. And he was fine with it. You know, he had us on many, many of his shows. So Donny Sigley, who loved what we did. You know, I really respect those old and older group of men and women because they they weren't you had to have a range of skills didn't you really you just you just didn't talk on the radio you just didn't present the weather no you had to you you had to have a basic idea of how things work can that only come from doing live performance no i think you've got to have some nous about you i mean if you if you you know you can do live performance till the cows come home but if you don't have a bit of nous if you don't learn anything if you don't learn anything what's the point (laughs) but it seemed to us that a lot of the the 80s uh journalists that we encountered really didn't have those 
requisite skills in in those fields and they approached us with a bit of fear and trembling in fact there are a couple of incidents that happened that were regretful in hindsight but it was because people didn't realize that we were an act that you're you are an act you're coming in as a performer's performing an act. To me, it seems quite natural, but do journalists would think that, oh, the, here's these troublemakers, they're going to deliberately do something to do that. That's just part of the act. So why don't they go, hey, 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 shut up to you, and then you guys can work with it, and you've got a, a much better dynamic going on than, the, than pretending that you're the evil incarnate. Oh, and you happen to be funny. But with us, you know, you would, I would look at people, the three of us sitting there, and we're just middle-class boys from Canberra. But they would be, you know, trembling. There'd be fear and you'd see it in their eyes and they'd be concerned about what you're going to say, where you're going to go, what you're going to fear. I even saw that in Newcastle when you talked to the Newcastle press when you were doing the GUD tour. They weren't asking you too many questions or anything. It was like, oh, we're not saying anything in case they go off. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Cultural terrorists? I I don't know. I, I, I find it profoundly weird that people are in that position would find us would have found us in any way difficult because we're so accommodating i thought the press would be resilient or would have some knowledge or would or or would push back a bit or or would push back or would have there would be play and interplay and you would get into some sort of debate perhaps that you would discuss things but more often than not the press were very timid in regards especially when the three of us were together there were a few exceptions but generally you would look at people and you could see the you could see a little bit of fear there and you think well it's odd that we would have that currency because we never sought to promote that sort of currency. I think it goes back to the whole car park thing when you got a bit mouthy about the bloody Covent Garden. Ah. Like. Attacking us on that sort of Australian, stereotypical Australian sort of ism was so silly. It was profoundly... I mean, it, it really did... It changed the way you looked at the press and the way you behaved as a group. It totally changed the way I looked at the press and uh, totally changed the way we behaved with the press from that moment on. And, in fact, many of the things we we did in regards to... You know, we were involved in in the Iraq War in in the early 90s and so on. And a lot of the stuff we were doing, we were lying about then, was like saying, well, if we can lie about this and it's something as hopeless as a TV show or a cabaret show, or Cause it, how can we rely you, you, you were telling people you were going to be in the new Batman film. Yeah. That was one of the ones, and that stuck. Well, that, that came about because we were told by the Green Guide through the ABC uh, publicists that even though we had a brand new show coming out on television, they, they weren't interested in writing anything about it unless they had some sort of angle. And so I think Tim said, well, we're going to be in the new Batman film because at that stage the, um, the producer of the Batman film were picking up certain comedians in London to appear as, in, bit, in bit parts in that film. There's a little bit of truth, which is always good for a lie, mm. to seed it with a bit of truth. We told them that. They just hungrily wanted it. They wanted that story. That's the story they wanted. So they said, um, we love that story. Give us more of that story. And it's like, well, okay. We're just we're, we're talking at the moment on... on um, on Jack Nicholson's yacht, we're just in the middle of the Seine in, no, uh, would, um, in uh, near the Pont Neuf. And, uh, would the Doug Anthony All-Stars lying to the press be completely thought about? Would it be completely contrived ahead or would you offer just just fly off, just make stuff up on the spot? make stuff up on well, the does, spot. So, so you wouldn't even make it internally consistent, your no, lies? No, no. <laughs> was, I mean, they were so obvious. They were gigantic lies. They weren't small. They were big lies. They were stupid lies. They were so ridiculous. Oh, we got along with Jack Nicholson because he liked our wacky Australian sense of humour. Oh, we won't write this article unless we get a photograph of you and Jack Nicholson. Really? Okay, well, don't publish it then. I mean, Jack's not the sort of guy that wants his (laughs) photograph plastered over, you know, as part of our publicity. So, okay, if you don't want to write it, don't write it. 
they wrote it. They didn't check their facts. No one checked anything. And then they hate us because we're the ones, they're the journalists. They're meant to research this shit, man. Anyway, it was very funny. And what's even more humorous was that when we did the second series of Das Kapital that they weren't going to promote again because it was just a television show on the ABC. What currency did it have? Have you got a story about it? We went, yes, we're going to be in the second Batman film. Do another journalist. And they fell for it. Well, they, you know, again. once again, that journalist didn't check their facts and just go back to the, the previous article about us, you know, and they wrote another article saying we're going to be in the second Batman. So it's like one of those, I just can't believe that, that these people, especially when you're children, you think that the newspaper and the new services are just totally factual. They're, you don't see them as editorialised pieces of pap that are there to to suit a certain market, to sell a certain style of car, to make money for their shareholders. You see them as a vehicle for truth, for the dissemination of information. But over time, you learn that uh, there's a lot of like self-deception going on with the newspapers and that maybe newspapers aren't exactly what they're cra- cracked up to be, and certainly even more so for um, things like the you know, televisual news, oh, the, which is you, just the, entertainment the, 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 now. Don't you love it? You've got your 24-hour news cycle and you've got good-looking, made-up anchormen reading Twitter. Oh, live! I'm, it's like what? Isn't there something else you could do? I mean, we're we're at a war. Aren't well, we're in a war. We're in a war, aren't we? Read a book. I mean, is there a book you could read? It might be more value than Twitter. Yeah, but we're a, we're in a war. We've got troops in Afghanistan. We've got troops in Iraq, haven't we? We've got we've got people all over the world at the moment that are in areas of conflict, and yet we don't we don't really hear about well, that on the you news. You think there'd be Miranda occurs in a car accident? Bang! Now you've got the this the idiocy of Twitter, which which has its uses, but. To be now a reference point in papers constantly, like, look what's happening on Twitter, it just seems completely bizarre to me that that has become an area that journalists can get another feed from. Here's another bit of hearsay from someone that doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, that's essentially it, you know, and you, you do require, I think, from journalists something more credible, something that is um, that is research, that has thought to it, that's not filling column spaces, and since the advent of the internet we've seen so many businesses go down we were talking about it before in regards to music now they were caught out in the in the late 80s early 90s and they were, the, the music industry was shown to be a dinosaur it's, it's um it's it, the whole way it ran business and the way it trapped people artists into into long-term contracts and then discarded them when they didn't like them anymore or they didn't sell the right number of units or tried to persuade them to change their music so it was more uh, appealing to a mass populace they were caught out and now we have this incredible proliferation of great artists across numerous musical genres and forms that maybe once an A&R man would never have listened to twice, uh, which is wonderful. We've got this incredible growth of young artists and really different music is coming out now, which is which is great. There's a lot of hybridisation and so on. You know, we need visionaries. And at the moment, television, talking about that before, television has bought into the... Well, their revenues have gone down, so what are they doing? They're, they're putting ads on that, that pay for themselves, so they're just, they're just, they've sold their soul to these, these idiot ad companies, which is just the wrong way to go. You're not going to gain a new audience by showing the same proactive ad across five stations at the same time of night over and over and over again. It's going to dissuade people from watching television and push them into into buying downloadable material, which everyone's doing. I mean, everyone now has, has got downloadable content. I mean, television is, is really in danger, I think, of becoming an absolute relic by its own hand, which is sad. And now we're talking about newspapers. Newspapers are doing the same thing. Newspapers are frightened of the internet. Well, they should be embracing it. They really should be trying to 
hold that and say, okay, this is a new form. We've got to give it as much journalistic credibility as we used to have, which we no longer have. We don't have it. We're not... I don't know of anyone in my age group that looks at a newspaper now in the same way I would have done when I was a 12 or 14-year-old as a credible journal of record. You know, I I just see them now as these totally editorialised and and purpose-made papers to sell certain ideas on us, to foist certain ideas on us. Like, they could be right-wing ideas. I mean, most of the papers... And, you know, and things it always has been, you just weren't aware of it before. You weren't aware of it, you know. And, um, you know, in this tabloid form, you get so many papers that are just so right-wing. You just think, God almighty, who isn't actually speaking, who isn't being bought out by the mining companies? Who doesn't have a... Who is, who's not being given some ex- all-expenses-paid trip to, uh, to check out holes in the ground? Who's not on their side? I mean, it just seems incredible that there are so many uh, of these large corporations. And news itself, the whole outcry about free speech is so disproportionate to the, the, the laws they were trying to enact. And really those laws are because of what happened with Rupert Murdoch in England. And you cannot... Th- those, those were identity theft, they were fraud, they were criminal charges that should have been laid against that organisation. People should go to jail for the rest of their lives for some of the things that they, they perpetrated in that country. And probably in America and possibly in Australia. I don't think that these were just incidents that were limited to England. I think this was a, you know, I believe it was probably something that happened globally. I think there's great, there's great evil enacted by the papers in the last, um, you know, 10 to 15 years, and I think they should be held accountable. And I think that the response to them, even, you know, the, the ideas of the, the free speech, the response from them has been so disproportionate, so, so, so like, a, like a guilty child crying. Kerry Stokes asking, what have we done to deserve this? Well, there, there you go. I've just said what you've done to deserve it. You have, you know, you should be regulated because you've, you've proven that you're just, you're wayward children, that you're not governed by any uh, ethics any longer. No, gui- you know, no guidelines for decency or, or journalistic, um, you know, there doesn't seem to be pride in journalism anymore, which is a tragedy because we, we did have a great press in this country at one stage. Thankfully, I was never a part of it, and that was why it was a great press. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I it, was never a part of it either. <laughs> you, you're bumming us out, man. You're bringing us down, Paul. Oh, they're good, good stuff as well. I mean, you know, family guy.
Maynard.com.au Hey you! 